0: This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycensy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Mark, chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. You can find it on page 851 in the Bibles in your rows if you'd like to follow along as I read. Mark fourteen thirty-two. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Is it enough? The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. Hopefully you uh, got a note from me this week uh, talking about my sabbatical, which begins in about three and a half hours or so, but who's counting? Um, Our policy here at New City is for our pastoral staff to get a sabbatical after seven years of service. This is my 14th year here at New City as the pastor and uh, my second sabbatical. And I'm really grateful for this. Our whole family is uh, looking forward to it. In fact, we're Heading town out of town or right out of uh, right after the the second service today, but it's been one of those uh, weeks where it's been kind of like a sprint to the finish. Last weekend I was in Arizona and got to speak uh, four times over the weekend. Last weekend uh, at a men's retreat there, which was a really rich time. Uh, a few little bumps in the road uh, when we were trying to land. Uh, lightning struck the runway uh, as we were uh, landing in Phoenix, so we had to you know do one of those last second. Pull-ups, which is never very fun when you're in the plane, not knowing what's going on, and you you know you you know feel the the engines grow, uh, growl and and then sort of a hard turn, and we had to divert and land in Las Vegas and sit on the runway there for a couple hours, and then eventually by the time I got to Phoenix, it was after midnight Phoenix time, Pacific Coast time, which is after 3 a.m. our time, so I was thrown off all week on sleeping and. Uh, though it was a great week there, I also got bronchitis when I was there. So coming back was um, not feeling my best. And I came home here uh, to write as a church planners cohort uh, with a group we work with called the Leaders Collective was here. And uh, it was a great week with these guys. Got to spend the week with them, do a couple of teachings for them. All of these guys are planting churches uh, in Georgia and North Carolina and Texas. And it was a really fun week to be with them, but an exhausting week all the same a uh, lot packed in here before we get ready to leave. But I do get to be with you one more time and one more installment in our Fruit of the Spirit series. We have been walking through this list of the Fruit of the Spirit or looking at these different aspects of the Fruit of the Spirit, all with the idea of uh, pressing deeper into likeness. We're supposed to be Uh, growing more up into the likeness of Jesus Christ, into the character of Christ. And the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 gives us a picture of what that looks like. If we're wondering what does it mean to be more like Jesus, he tells us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And that's where we are today, thinking about faithfulness. And that should be an important concept to you because if you are a follower of Jesus, The words that you most want to hear at the very end of your life are well done, good and faithful servant, right? That's what we want to hear as followers of Jesus. And so what does it mean then to be faithful? Well, faithfulness means to be trustworthy. Faithfulness means to be dependable. Faithful people keep their word. They follow through on their promises. They can be trusted not to cheat or deceive or to bail or to take off on you. And usually the idea of faithfulness also carries the connotation of stability. You stay true over time. Like Eugene Peterson's great phrase, a long obedience in the same direction. That's faithfulness. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And so just to do a little credit at the front end, uh, Tim Keller passed away this last week as well, and um, he's a pastor in our denomination, and... I was finding this out, actually, just that he was about to pass away as I was flying to Arizona, and I had all that extra time on the plane, and so I was using that time to listen to a lot of Tim's stuff, reading some of his writings, listening to some of his talks and his teachings. He's had a big influence on me over the years, and all that to say, I don't think I'm going to quote Tim Keller directly this morning, but uh, his teaching is really threaded through everything that I'm going to say today. And so take that as like a blanket footnote uh, at the beginning and a debt of gratitude before we get into things this morning. But Mark chapter 14, this is a passage with two case studies in faithfulness, right? There's the failure of the disciples on the one hand, and then it's contrasted with the faithfulness of Jesus. The failure of the disciples and the faithfulness of Jesus. So that's how we're going to look at it this morning. So let's talk about the disciples first. You see, Uh, their failure, mostly in verses 37 to 40, right? First, we see that this is a, a failure of obedience because Jesus has asked them to do something, something that they don't follow through on. He's asked them to stay up with him, to pray with him. It's his darkest moments. He needs his friends, and they agree to do this. They say yes, but they don't follow through. Three times he comes back. And three times he finds them asleep. Now, we don't explicitly see them here saying, okay, yes, Jesus, we promise to stay up with you. We promise to pray for you. But it's implied in the text that they're agreed to this because when you get to verse 40, it says they don't know how to answer him. He comes and he confronts them. Why are you asleep? And they're ashamed. He says they didn't even know how to answer him. They didn't follow through. It's not just a failure of obedience, but it's also a failure of relationship, right? Because faithfulness always has to do with relationship. Faithfulness has to do with relationships. Think of friendships, right? We, we all know what a fair-weather friend is, right? Somebody who's there when things are easy. Fair-weather friend is there when things are fun, when things are good. But you know you just can't count on them when things get difficult, when things are uh, less easygoing. Or in marriage, right? When we talk about faithfulness in marriage, right, we have wedding vows. And what are we saying in those vows? We say, I'll be there in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. Right? So faithfulness is not just uh, staying true to an idea, it's staying true to the people that you're committed to. The disciples failed. By not staying true to their word, but they also fail because they let their friend down. In his most desperate hour, when he needed them most, in his moments of agony, disciples were not there for him. And I want you to see in this story that this is us. This is us. The disciples are us. Don't read this and think, ah, the disciples, those guys are so awful, they're so stupid, they're so bad. This is us. We're like this. And if you'll search your mind for a minute, search your own heart, search your own life, I bet you can think of examples of your own unfaithfulness, your lack of faithfulness. Think of the things that you've let go, the times when you didn't follow through, the things that you said you would do for others and you just didn't do it, things that you said you would do for yourself, right? That's what a broken resolution is, right? It's unfaithfulness to yourself. Think about the things that you said you would do for God and you didn't follow through on. We probably can't even recall a tenth of the ways that we failed to follow through. This is us. The disciples are us. And I would bet, though, that the vast majority of the time, you meant to follow through, right? You didn't set out to be unfaithful in those moments. The disciples, they're like that, too. They didn't set out to be unfaithful. It's not like they were thinking, all right, right, we'll just tell him That we'll stay awake, and then as soon as he's gone, right, then ha ha, ha, we'll fall asleep or we'll do whatever we want. No, of course not, right? They meant what they said when they agreed to this earlier in the chapter, when Peter says, I'll never deny you, even if everybody takes off, Jesus. He meant it when he said that. Even if we learn later he fails. Right? This is why Jesus says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We all intend to be faithful but it's hard. We fail. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. And part of unfaithfulness is when we're unfaithful even to our own consistency, our failure to stay true even to our own desire to be faithful. We intend to follow through, but we don't. Now, why not? It's usually when pressure comes, right? When difficulty comes, Unfaithfulness is usually occasioned by pressure, pain, or difficulty, or temptation. And even though we want to follow through, even though we meant it when we promised it, the circumstances in our life change. And so then it becomes easier to break our vow, to break our commitment, to go back on our word, to leave that person, fall asleep on our friends. What kind of pressure were the disciples under in our story? Well, they're exhausted for sure. Right? They can't keep their eyes open, the text says. And there's a reason, of course, that sleep deprivation is a, a torture tactic. All right? That's, it's a tough thing. But it's way more than that because the disciples, you know, Jesus is in agony here, but the disciples are in the thick of their own sorrow and their own disappointment. They were hopeful, after all, that Jesus would be the one who would deliver Israel from their oppressors. Right? They thought Jesus would come and throw off the shackles of Rome. But now it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. In fact, it seems like everything that they had hoped for is starting to fall apart. And frankly, to be honest, you know, the disciples, if they were asked, they're not too happy with the way that Jesus had been handling himself the week leading up to this, right? They certainly, he certainly wasn't doing what he, they thought he should be doing. They told him not to go to Jerusalem because they, they knew that folks were out to kill him. But against their better judgment, against their pleas, Jesus goes To Jerusalem anyway, and he doesn't sort of lay low. Rather, he makes a spectacle for himself. He rides in on a donkey. He receives worship. People are uh, throwing palm fronds in his path. The people are receiving him as a king, and he just accepts this, not exactly flying under the radar. He then goes into the temple and begins to turn over tables. He cleanses the temple. He throws out the money changers, gets everybody upset, And then just a few hours before the episode we just read about, at the Last Supper, Jesus begins to talk about one of them is going to betray him. One of them is going to hand him over to his executioners. So the disciples are scared, and they're sad, and they're disappointed. Life is not turning out as they hoped it would. It's certainly not how they would have drawn it up. Where are those pressure points for you? When you're tempted to bail, when you're tempted to break your promises, when you're tempted to depart from your convictions, when you'll stray away from your commitments. For some of us, it's maybe something like respect or being liked or keeping up appearances that uh, pressures us into unfaithfulness, right? We say we believe one thing at church, one thing in our family, but we live differently at work or differently at school. The jokes that we laugh at, the opinions we hold, what we're willing to speak up about, those morph based on who we're around. That split personality is a kind of unfaithfulness, isn't it? For others of us, it's temptation. We're committed. We say we're committed to a certain kind of ethic, but then greed comes knocking, right? There's an opportunity To make more money, and then all of a sudden, we're not quite so committed to those same ethics as we were before. Our business practices morph and change. It's a kind of unfaithfulness. Maybe it's the pain and the pressure of frustration and disappointment. We make these commitments in our life about how we're going to live and who we're going to follow what we're going to be like. We make those commitments in good times, but now it's bad times. It's difficult times, and and so we're desperately searching for something else that would make us happy, and so we're willing to trade out our spouse or trade out our faith even in the hopes that that's going to give us happiness. Pressure, right? The occasion for unfaithfulness. So first is the failure of the disciples in our text, but then there's the contrast. Right? Because then we get a look at the faithfulness of Jesus. The faithfulness of Jesus, starting in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Now, I want you to notice that it says, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Now, something new is happening here, in other words. Up to this point, if we weren't just sort of looking at this chapter in a one-off this morning, if we were reading this in context, you would notice, right, up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been unflappable. Nothing surprised him. He's always in control. For example, Mark chapter 4, there's a a storm at sea. The disciples are all screaming, we're going to die. Where's Jesus? He's asleep, totally at peace in the back of the boat. He wakes up finally. He says, Peace, be still to the storm. Totally unfazed. Or Mark chapter 5, the whole village is freaking out because there's a guy who has a legion of demons and he's terrorizing everyone. But for Jesus, this is no problem. Then he encounters a, a woman who has a chronic. Decade-long bleeding issue. No problem for Jesus. Then there's a, a, a daughter has died. No problem for Jesus. Jesus walks on water as Peter is sinking. He takes care of all these things. And all the while, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. But here it's different, Right? We're in Gethsemane, and it's totally different. Jesus is falling to the ground. He's sweating drops of blood. He's praying the prayer of agony. He's coming apart at the seams. So what's happening now that wasn't there before? Because he knew what he was going to Jerusalem to do. This was not news to him that he was going to die, right? He told the disciples this over and over and over again, that the Son of Man must die, must be crucified. The difference is before... This had been information. But now in Gethsemane, Jesus is beginning to experience it. At Gethsemane in the garden, Jesus begins to taste what he would suffer on the cross in full. It says he began to be greatly distressed. In the Greek word there it means literally, it means he was astonished. I like the old King James Translation, it says he was sore amazed. Now, think about that for a second. The eternal, something's happening to Jesus. The eternal Son of God is stunned by it. There's something that's happening to him now that astonishes Jesus, who knows all things. He's sore amazed, greatly distressed. It also says he he was troubled. And the Greek word there means to be overcome with horror. When I was uh, in elementary school, at our bus stop, we uh, there was a brick wall, kind of the entrance to the neighborhood, a little brick wall which marked off the beginning of the subdivision. And we'd play hide and seek around this thing. We'd play chase around this thing. And one day in particular, I'm running around the wall, and I can't remember what game we're playing, but I'm running around the wall, and I trip, and I almost fall directly onto I'm just inches away in my face from a large, dead German shepherd. Now, this wasn't my dog, but it was appalling to see, right, especially for a little kid. And I'll spare you the description, even now, though, retelling it, I can remember because this dog had been dead for several days. I remember the smell. I remember the nausea. I remember the shock. I remember the flies. I remember the horror. And that just barely touches at what this word means, being overcome with horror. And that's what Jesus is experiencing. In verse 34, he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He's saying, I'm so overwhelmed. I feel as if I'm going to die. I feel like I'm going to die. Now, a lot of people have commented over the years, the way that the Bible portrays Jesus here, the way that the Bible portrays Jesus going to his death, it doesn't seem quite as heroic or brave as a lot of other examples that we have from history. I mean, if you read the stories of the martyrs, right? You get a book like the Fox's Book of Martyrs or something like that. Uh, you read these stories of people who died for their faith and so many of them bravely and courageously marched to their death, their heads held high. They couldn't be moved. They were calm and they were brave to the end. Some of them were singing hymns even as they were being killed. Take uh, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Lattimore. They were burned at the stake for their faith in Oxford, England, in 1555. They were tied side by side when the fire was lit under their feet. Latimer said to Ridley, he said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Hear the defiance, the bravery, the courage, There's tons of these examples in Christian history, and and frankly, not just in Christian history, right? Take um, Socrates, for example, right? He's made to drink hemlock, right, poison, and he knows this is going to kill him. He's uh, taking this. He has it in his hands. He's taking the hemlock, all the while surrounded by his disciples, serene, composed, uh, calmly giving his last instructions to his disciples, Right, he even makes provisions, like he tells one of them, he's like, by the way, I forgot, I, we, we owe this guy a chicken, I need you to go pay the debt. You know, he's thinking about settling up his debts. He's calm and composed, he even makes a joke or two as he's going to his death. So how is it then that many others seem to have died better than Jesus did? Is Jesus not as brave? Is Jesus not as composed? Is he not as strong? Is he not as at peace as these others? The Bible tells us what's happening. And our text this morning gives us a little bit of a clue. Jesus dies the way he dies because Jesus is facing an order of suffering that no one else in the history of the world has had to bear, at least in that way. Jesus is facing an order of suffering that's different or unique in the way that he has to bear it. Look at verse 35. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Remove this cup from me. In the Hebrew Bible, the cup is a metaphor for the wrath of God being poured out against all human evil, all human sin, all human rebellion. For example, Ezekiel chapter 23, where it says, thus says the Lord God, you shall drink the cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation the cup of your sister Samaria, you shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear your breasts. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Or Isaiah 51, verse 17, where Isaiah says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. You see what's happening? the sins of the entire world are beginning to be laid upon jesus he's starting to drink the cup and he staggers the weight of the burden of all the evil all the genocide all the betrayals all the rapes all the abuse all the guilt all the shame all the injustice all the sin is being pressed upon him now and his agony is not just in what he's receiving It's also in what he's losing. What is Jesus losing? He's losing the loving presence of God the Father. He cries, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Abba is an Aramaic diminutive term for father. It's the equivalent of our papa or daddy. And here we learn a little bit more even about the nature of his suffering. You see, the wrath of God was going to result in the torment of separation. And we know something of this. Right? We knew something of this pain, the torment of separation, whether it be by distance or betrayal or death. We know the pain of being torn apart from somebody that we love. And the more intimate the relationship, the more important the relationship, the more torturous it is when it's severed. Right, if your friend says, I reject you, well, that's bad. That hurts. But if a parent says it, can cast a shadow over your whole life, right? And if a spouse says it, it can break your heart, it can wreck you. And listen, there has never been a more intimate relationship than within the triune God. For all of eternity, Jesus has been flooded with love from the Father and the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel of John, he talks like this all the time, right? He's referencing his relationship to the Father. I am in the Father. The Father's in me. I only do the Father's will. I only uh, speak the Father's words. You reject the Father, you reject me. We are so close. Other times we just get peeks behind the curtain. Jesus' baptism, for example, where the Father speaks down from heaven. The Holy Spirit comes down like a dove and the Father says, This is my beloved Son, of whom I am well pleased. That's been true for all eternity past, but here in Gethsemane, Jesus turns to the Father, and for the first time, all he gets is wrath. The cup that he's drinking is the cup of hell, the cup of punishment. He stumbles as he begins to drink the the cup of exclusion from all light and life and love. Jesus is getting now a foretaste of the hammer of justice against all sin and evil in the world and he staggers. Before or since, no one has had more pressure than this. No one has had a heavier burden to bear. No one had more to lose And so he prays, remove this cup from me. Prayer in all honesty, but also a prayer of incredible faithfulness. Because then he says, not my will, but yours be done. Or our translation, yet not what I will, but what you will. In unparalleled suffering, Jesus doesn't back down. Now, listen, he's not detached, right? He, he prays his heart's desire, remove this cup from me. You know, Buddhism or Stoicism, they right, might say the way to endure these kinds of things, the way to endure the hard parts of life, the pressure is just to squelch your desires, get rid of your desires. The problem with that, though, right, That's you also squelch your love. You get rid of your passion. You get rid of your tenderness, That's not Jesus. No, Jesus honestly and desperately pleads and asks for the cup to pass him by. But Jesus also knows that what often seem to be our deepest desires are actually just our loudest desires at the moment. That's important for us to know, too, when we're thinking about faithfulness, that often what seem to be our deepest desires are actually just our loudest desires. In the moment. And when you're under pressure, when you're in pain, when you're experiencing disappointment and disillusion, when you're tempted, you often can't think straight. And it's in those moments that very often we can make terrible decisions. Terrible decisions that uh, can undermine the people that we love the most, that can undermine the values that we hold the most. But not for Jesus. At the supreme moment of personal pain in the history of the world, Jesus doesn't do that. He says, yet not what I will, but what you will. That's faithfulness, friends. Jesus is subordinating his loudest desires by putting them into the Father's hands. He knows that as horrible as this cup is for him, his immediate desire to be spared must bow ultimately before his greatest desire, which is to please the Father and to save his people. That's faithfulness. No one has experienced pressure like the pressure Jesus was under, and yet he stays true, true to the Father, and true to his mission to redeem his people. So then what does that mean for us? How do we grow? We're we're talking about cultivating the fruit of the Spirit. We want to grow into Christlikeness. We want to be more like Jesus. Well, what does that look like in this case? What does it mean to grow in faithfulness? How do we do that? Well, first, we need, to, we need to pray, right? This is what Jesus asked the disciples to do, right? Verse 38, watch and pray, he says, that you may not enter into temptation. That should be a familiar, regular prayer for you. Watch and pray, Lord, that I may not fall into temptation. Because even if you're willing, your flesh is weak. We learn that from the text. And so we all need God's help. We need the work of the Holy Spirit. It's Pentecost Sunday after all, right? We need the Holy Spirit to move into us and to work through us if we're to stay true and faithful. And prayer is not just what Jesus tells the disciples to do, but it's also what he himself does, right? He never stops praying. Did you notice? Verse 35, he falls on the ground, he prays, he pours his heart out to God. But then again in verse 39, he went away and he prayed saying these same words. In fact, if you continue reading the story, Jesus never stops praying all the way to the cross. So how can you be faithful? You have to pray. I pray that you wouldn't enter into temptation. Pray that you wouldn't lose heart. Pray that you wouldn't lose your strength. Pray that God would meet you where you need it most. Pour your heart out to him, yes. Know that he hears you. Develop intimacy and communion with him in prayer. And then grow in your trust in him. That your heart will be softened to his will, that you'll be able to sublimate your loudest desires to your greater desire, which is to follow him no matter the cost, to stay true no matter the sacrifice. To grow in faithfulness, we need to pray. Secondly, to grow in faithfulness, we need the comforting presence of friends. We need the presence of friends. In his darkest moment, Jesus asked for his friends to stay awake with him. And that should tell us something about the importance of friendship and community, right, about the value of presence, right? Somebody being with you in the hard moments, alongside you in those hard moments. Somebody's willing to share a burden with you. Stay awake with me, he says. Also the value of prayer, right? Having others intercede for you, call out to God for you. When you have trouble calling out yourself to have somebody else do it on your behalf. Now, listen, if Jesus needed this, how much more so you and me? Jesus was sinless and perfect, and yet he asked his friends to wait up with him in his darkest moments. You need this too. And the flip side, right, is that you should recognize that there are others who need you to be this in their life. Consider how important it is for you to come alongside others who are wounded, who are hurting, who are tempted, who are tried. Are there people like that in your life? I bet there are. Folks who need your presence, folks who need your prayers. Will you be available for this kind of ministry? We need each other. Stay faithful. By the way, this is one of the reasons why there's always witnesses, right, at weddings. Even, even I did a few COVID weddings right in the very beginning. Even then we had a few witnesses around, right? Uh, you need that, right? You invite friends and family to witness your vows, right, and to bear witness as your life goes on to remind you, to encourage you to stay true, to encourage you in faithfulness. We need friends. The same as in the church, right? You profess your faith, you join a church, you take vows as members, and others are witnessing that, and then they labor with you to help you to make good on those vows, to stay faithful, to stay true. To grow in faithfulness, we need to pray. We need the comforting presence of friends. And then finally, any faithfulness of ours needs to be built on the sure foundation of Christ's faithfulness to us. Any faithfulness of ours has to ultimately be rooted and grounded and built upon the foundation of Christ's faithfulness to us. Jonathan Edwards has a sermon uh, called Christ's Agony. And uh, in the sermon, he reminds us, you know, that the greatest act of faithfulness in the history of the world was happening when Jesus was looking at his friends, letting him down. Think about that for a second, right? Jesus would have had every right to look at these guys and say, why should I plunge myself into terrible agony for these guys who are consistently letting me down. I'm going to go to the cross. They can't even stay up with me. Why should I endure suffering for those who can't even stay awake for me in my moment of greatest need? And here's Edwards. He's saying, Jesus must have been thinking, why should I, who have been living from all eternity in the enjoyment of the Father's love, go to cast myself into such a furnace for them that can never quite it from me? Why should I yield myself to be thus crushed by the weight of divine wrath for them who have no love to me and are my enemies? They do not deserve any union with me and never did and never will do anything to recommend themselves to me. It goes on, though. Such, however, was not the language of Christ's heart in these circumstances. But on the contrary, his love held out. And he resolved even then, in the midst of his agony, to yield himself up to the will of God and to take the cup and drink it. See the contrast, the unfaithfulness of the disciples, the faithfulness of Jesus. Any attempt at faithfulness on our part has to be built on the faithfulness of Jesus to us. Right? And when you look at Jesus in this story, when you look at him, the faithfulness of Jesus while his friends are letting him down. Doesn't that inspire you? Doesn't that change you even? Doesn't that make you want to be faithful and true even when there's other people in your life letting you down? But even more than that, it's a reminder that we're the disciples. We're the ones who've been letting him down. But the good news of the gospel, friends, is that you are saved, not by your faithfulness, but because of his faithfulness. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Our hope is not ultimately in what we have done or what we will do, but in the faithful love of Jesus who will not let us go. He drank the cup of bitter judgment for our sin so that all that is left for you is the cup of God's blessing and love. And when that captures your heart, when we really see his faithfulness, that's when we get the strength then to be faithful to him, even when the pressure is on. And so, friends, let's bear the fruit of faithfulness in our life. Let's stay true to our word and to our commitments. Let's be faithful in our relationships. And ultimately, above all else, let's be faithful to Jesus. So we want to hear him say at the end, well done, good. And faithful servant it really was touching this last week to see evidence for somebody of whom that was true uh, michael keller tim keller's son said that some of his dad's last words were these there's no downside to my leaving not in the slightest i just want to see jesus It's a picture of faithfulness and may it be so with us May we be faithful to the end. Let's pray. Then we're going to come to the Lord's Supper together. Father, we ask indeed that you would show us how indeed faithful and true that you are. Jesus, who went to the cross even amidst his, let alone his enemies who were killing him, but even his friends were letting him down. Even his friends who said they would stand by him fell asleep. Even his friends, who said they would be with him to the end, denied him and hid away, and yet he's faithful. Lord, that should give us confidence, that should give us hope, your faithful love for us, and hopefully then inspire in us a desire to love you in that same way. You've been faithful to us. Lord, would you help us to be faithful to you? You help us now to experience your faithful love even as we come to the Lord's Supper together. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon
0: from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycency.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.